I trust that we are all looking forward to that day when we get to heaven. And in the meantime, we want to live our lives for the glory and honor of God. Psalm 119, beginning at verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of thy words. I rejoice at thy word as one who finds great spoil. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love thy law. Seven times a day I praise thee because of thine righteous ordinances. Those who love thy law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for thy salvation, O Lord, and do thy commandments. My soul keeps thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep thy precepts and thy testimonies, for all my ways are before thee. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do look forward to that day when we all get to heaven. And we pray that we might do all that we can here on earth to ensure that men and women and boys and girls do get to heaven. Help us to be faithful in the proclamation of the gospel so that people can hear it and that they can repent of their sins and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, as we walk here on earth, help us to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thankful today that we can come to your word and ask that you would speak to each and every one of us in a special way. We realize that some gladly want to receive your word and others don't, but we pray that despite our attitude that you would use your word in our lives to cause us to be all that you want us to be. We commit ourselves to you and ask that you would glorify yourself through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. And you can be seated. The subject of the message is life before God. Life before God. It's based upon the last phrase of the last verse of the stanza that I just read to you. The psalmist declared that all of his ways, not some of them, not a few of them, but all of his ways are before God. That is a thought that should permeate our thinking, that all of our ways are before God. And indirectly, the psalmist is proclaiming that God is omniscient, meaning that he knows everything perfectly, and also that God is omnipresent, that there's nowhere that you can go and escape the presence of God. In the language of Psalm 139, our God, the psalmist is basically saying, scrutinizes all of our ways. In fact, 
in Psalm 139, it says there's nowhere that you or I can go to escape the presence of God. Before Hebrews 13, I'm, I'm sorry, Hebrews 4 verse 13 was written, the psalmist believed in the reality of that verse. The writer of Hebrews says, there is no creature, not one, who is hidden from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's a powerful verse, that everything that we do is laid bare before God. There's nothing that we can hide from him. Now, life before God can be a dreadful thought. We might cringe when we think that all of our thoughts and all of our words and all of our deeds are before God. That nothing escapes him at all. Doesn't matter if it's good or bad or ugly. All before the all-seeing God. But life before God for the psalmist was a delightful thought. It was a delightful thought. He lived consciously recognizing that whatever he did, all of his ways were before the living God. And that didn't bother him, but instead it helped him. It encouraged him. It moved him on to live life in a way that pleases the God who sees everything. No matter what the circumstances might be, no matter what the situation might be, the psalmist lived before God. It ordered his steps. It dictated how he lived. That blessed reality that life is lived before God. And this morning from our text, I want to encourage us and really exhort us to live life before God, to have that realization, to have that mindset that when I speak a word, when I think a thought, when I do a deed, I should always do it in light of the fact that it is before God. It is before God. And to really press home this truth to us, I want to point out to you six marks of a life lived before God. Six marks. And I think as we understand these six marks, as we look at them, it will move us, it will motivate us to live life before God like the psalmist did. Uh, the first mark of life before God is that it references God's word. Life before God has a godly attitude toward the word of God. We, we learn of the psalmist's perspective toward the word of God, not while he's on the mountaintop, but rather while he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. At the beginning of verse 164, he says to God, God, 
princes persecute me without cause. So he understands that his life is difficult. He understands that he's not, quote, uh, living life to its fullest in the sense that there are others who are after him. He's faithful to God. He's loving God. But he is aware that he has persecutors, that he has enemies. He has individuals who are opposed to them. And he says, God, they persecute me. Princes, leaders, people in high places. Uh, These are not his, quote, his buddies, but these are individuals of authority. Uh, They were mentioned earlier in verse 23 when the psalmist said that princes sit and talk against me. That's what he's going through. That's what he's facing. And it's in this context, recognizing that he's being persecuted, and the persecution is not justified. He says, I'm being persecuted without cause. Sometimes we do face conflict and troubles and problems because we are at fault. But not so with the case of this man. He can say to God, God, they're persecuting me. And they're doing it without cause. There's no basis. There's no reason for what I am experiencing. And in light of this context, he says, my heart stands in awe of your word, God. What a statement. To be going through difficulties and hardships, he can say to God, God, my heart, my innermost being, the true me, stands in awe of your word. That is, God, I reverence your word. God, I respect your word. God, I'm in fear of your word. I do not treat your word lightly. I tremble at your word. His heart is not dropping, it's not drooping, but instead his heart is in fear of God's word. There's that reverential awe toward the magnificent words that come out of the mouth of God. He's being persecuted, he's facing challenges, but he says, my heart, God, it's in awe. A-W-E, it's in awe of your words. I am amazed, I am astonished by the magnificent of your word. So that's his heart's stance. And the question is, what is our heart stance toward God's word? What's your posture toward the Bible? Do you reverence the word of God? Are you in awe of the sayings and the words that we find in this wonderful book that we call the Bible? A a second mark of life before God is that it rejoices over the word of God. You might think that when someone fears the word, that they cannot experience joy. And the psalmist is saying, no, it's just the opposite. 
Not only do I reverence God's word, not only is there that reverential awe, but I rejoice at the word of God. He's quick to say that his heart stands in awe of God's word, but he says right on the heels of that, I rejoice. That is, I continually and repeatedly rejoice. Joy is flooding my heart at your word. God's word does not bring him sorrow. Uh, He doesn't get upset with the word of God. Even though he's facing persecution, he's not mad at God. He's not angry with God. He's saying, God, just the opposite. I'm in awe of your word, and your word just brings joy and delight and happiness to my soul. It's as if he's saying, it is well with my soul when I embrace your word, God. I rejoice at it. And he wants us to understand that his joy is, can be compared to the joy of one finding great spoil. Now, I realize we don't really talk that way, do we? We don't go around saying, I found great spoil. Or I found great booty. Or I found great bounty. But in the psalmist's day, when wars took place, when battles were fought, the one who won claimed an abundance of spoil. In fact, in the book of First Samuel, after the Amalekites raided the nation of Israel, and David was trying to get back what was taken from him. In fact, two of his wives were taken. Don't get hung up on the two wives. Just recognize that two of his wives were taken from him and a host of other stuff were taken from him. And what, David, what did David do? He, he sought with God's help and God's enablement to recapture that. And when he saw the Amalekites, he saw them. They were partying. They were dancing, and they were eating. And the text says the reason why was because of the great spoil that they had captured in their war, in their battle with Israel. So great spoil brought them joy to such an extent. Here they were eating, having a great time, and dancing, and partying, and enjoying life to its fullest because they had gotten great spoil. What the Psalms is saying, the great spoil of God's word causes me to party, causes me to dance, causes me to eat, causes my heart to be full of joy and delight. That's the joy that the word brought to him. He was not sad. He was not disappointed. He was not discouraged. He was not moping. He was not sleeping. When it came to his interaction with God's word, it, it, it brought a joy to him. When he could hear the word, 
When he could read the word and study the word and memorize the word and meditate on it, it brought joy. And so it's clear that he treasured, he valued this book that we call the Bible. It brought delight to his life. It brought joy to his heart. And so he can say, God, I rejoice. I rejoice at thy word as one who finds great spoil. What an emotion. What, what's your emotion when it comes to this book we call the Bible? It ought to be continual rejoicing. Another mark of life before God is that it reverent, is that it loves God's word. It not only reverences the word of God, not only rejoices at God's word, but it loves God's word. And this doesn't shock us, at least if we've been paying attention at all to Psalm 119, because the psalmist has said this repeatedly. And now he says so in verse 163. He brings out his love for God's word by contrasting it with his hate for something else. He starts off the verse by saying, I hate and despise falsehood. This man of God who rejoiced at the word, this man of God who reverenced the word, said there's something that he hates. There's something that he can't stand. And what he can't stand, what he hates, is falsehood. He had no room in his life for lies. He had no room in his life for untruths. He hated that. And he even detested that and was disgusted with it. That which was false, the psalmist hated and abhorred and detested. We, commonly in our day today, are challenged to love falsehood, to love lies. We can watch two hours of a movie that's based upon nothing but lying and deception. The, the psalmist says, I hate falsehood. And I'm not trying to kill your entertainment life or anything like that, but I just want you to understand that this man hated falsehood. He hated untruth. He hated lying. He hated deceit. And, and that's not even really the main point that he's making. He brings that up to contrast it with the fact that he loves God's word. God, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love thy law. And as you know, this is a common theme in Psalm 119. How often do we hear the psalmist saying it? The verse that sticks out of my mind is verse 97, when the psalmist says, Oh, how I love thy law. With, with, with a force and exclamation, with joy of the heart, he says, God, I love your law. And then recently in verse 127, he said, God, I love your commandments more than gold. Yes, even more than fine gold. 
the best of gold. You compare my love for your word, I love it more than the things that are available to a man materially. And so over and over again, the psalmist proclaims his love for the word. And in fact, he's going to do it two more times in our eight verses. But, but we need to understand, he's not talking about some romantic type of love. He's not talking about some emotional kind of love. He's not saying, oh, I got a good gooey feeling over the word of God. When he says he loves the word of God, it means that he's committed to it. And he's devoted to the word of God. And what he's saying, God, God, I love your word in the sense that I am committed to doing it. I am committed to obeying it. I am devoted to your word of God. Nobody wants to hear how much you love something. No mate wants to hear, oh, I love you. They they want to see the proof. They want to see the action. They want to see the commitment, the devotion. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He's not just trying to wave and banner and say, I love the word. No, his evidence, his proof, as we saw in verse 97, is that he meditates on the word all the day. And even in our text, he's going to tell us when we look at the next mark, um, another evidence that you love the word. In that next mark, the fourth mark, of life before God is that it praises God for his word. You want to know when a person truly loves the word of God? When a person is devoted and committed to the word of God, one of the evidences is that you praise God for his word. You take time to pause, to stop, and to give thanks and to praise God for the words that have come out of his mouth. And so he says, almost shockingly, he says in verse 164, seven times a day I praise thee because of thy Righteous ordinances. He's not bragging. Again, he's talking to God. He's not trying to impress others. God, seven times a day, I I praise thee for thy righteous ordinances. Not one time, not twice, not even three times, but seven times a day. And I don't think he's trying to be literal. I don't think he's saying, God, I do it once, twice, no, up to seven times, then I stop. I think he's saying that he continually is praising God for his word. Uh, He is so thankful, he's so excited for the word of God that he can't help but praise God and give thanks to God for the wonderful word of God. That's the proof that he loves it. No need saying you love the word and you don't ever stop and pause and thank God for his wonderful word. This was a man who was committed to regularly each day 
praising God for his word. Do you praise God for his word? Do you praise God for the nature of his word? That it is living, that it is effective, that it is cutting, that it is penetrating and discerning according to Hebrews 4.12? Do you praise God that all scripture is God-breathed and comes forth from the mouth of God? Do you just get excited and delighted about the nature of this book? That it's not written by human beings alone. But God used the human author to produce word for word exactly what he wanted. And so the psalmist says, basically, now when I think about the nature of the Bible, it causes me, thank you, God. Thank you that there is somewhere in all of this world where there is truth. That in a world of falsehood and lies and deceit, your word is truth. He thanks God for the power of the word. He he recognizes that God's word will help you to live a clean life. Verse 9, how can a young man, an old man, a, a, a young woman or an old woman, how can they live a clean life? It's when you order your life according to the word of God. That's the ability, the power of the word God. Verse 11, the psalmist says, I stored it up. I've treasured it in my heart. Why? Because the word of God has the ability to keep you from sin. Sometimes we struggle with sin and we wonder why. Well, we never are storing up God's word in our heart to keep us from sin. And then on New Year's Day, we looked at Psalm 119, verse 105, where the psalmist says, God, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Do we ever, ever thank God for the nature of his word, the ability of his word? I think a good practice would be That when we read the word, when we hear the word, when we study the word, when we memorize the word, when we meditate on the word, that we should give thanks to God for his word. And in that way, at least we can say one day out of the week, I thank you, God, (laughs) for your word. Let me move on. I don't want to get in trouble. A fifth mark that we see of a life lived before God is that it experiences great peace from loving God's word. Great peace. The psalmist says at the beginning of verse 165, those who love thy law have great peace. And he's particular in those whom he who he is identifying. He doesn't say everyone has great peace. No, he said those who love your word, God. The the people that experience great peace in their life is not just every human being in the world. 
and not everyone who's a child of God, but it's those who are the children of God who love the word. Those who love the word, the law, the instruction, the teaching of the word of God. Those are the ones who experience great shalom, much well-being, a tranquility of life. We have people whose minds are divided, people who are distressed, people who are worrying. And the psalmist says that there, there's a benefit to loving the word and being dedicated to the word and, and being committed to the word. And the benefit is that you can experience great peace in your life. Your, your mind doesn't have to be distracted. Your mind doesn't have to be divided. Scripture talks about a person whose mind is stayed on God will experience peace. Here the psalmist is saying those who love the word, those who are committed to the word, they have great shalom. They have great peace. When you are committed to following the ways of God, when you're committed to living the way he wants you to live, the result of that, is peace, great peace, tranquility of soul, so that you can say, it is well with my soul. Not from a salvation point of view, but from a sanctification point of view. It's well with your soul. Why? Because you love the word of God. But another benefit that's mentioned in that verse of loving God's word is that it protects you from stumbling. Loving God's word gives you great peace, but also, my friends, it will protect you from stumbling. Life is filled with many obstacles, hardships, and difficulties. There there are hurdles that we have to go over, so to speak. And there are potholes that we have to avoid. Life is challenging. But the psalmist is saying that if we will commit to the word of God and, and devote ourselves to God's word as evidence that we love the word, then there will be nothing that causes us to stumble. That's quite a promise. Nothing. Those who love God's law have great peace and nothing at all causes them to stumble. You won't ever go wrong with devoting yourself and committing yourself to the word of God. That is to loving God's law and instruction. Because when you love it, You keep it. And so the psalmist talks about this great benefit. Great peace. And that's what we need so often in life. Because we are facing so many different storms of life. Our world is turned upside down in so many different ways. It's not easy going down the path of righteousness. But the psalmist says you can experience God's great shalom. 
God's great well-being, a peace that will be yours even though you're in the midst of a storm. You'll be, quote, like Jesus. Remember when Jesus and his disciples were in the middle of that storm. Water was flooding in on their boat. And what was Jesus doing? Sleeping. Didn't have a care in the world. Some of us can't sleep. We we allow the things of life to rob us of the great peace that can be ours. And the psalmist is saying, those who love God's word, who are committed to it, experience and have great peace. And they have security and protection so that nothing causes them to stumble. There are, as I said earlier, there's so many obstacles, so many hurdles, so many pitfalls in life. But you don't have to trip over everyone. You don't have to stumble and fall into every pothole. You can have your life freed from these stumbling blocks. The last mark that I want to point out to you of a life before God is that it obeys God's word. Yes, obedience. The psalmist, again, this is one of his favorite themes of Psalm 119. He doesn't mind talking about obeying God. He doesn't see that as legalistic. Instead, he sees obeying God as evidence that you love God and love his word. And so throughout the psalm, he talks about obeying God. He likes to use these twin words, keep and observe. Anytime you read Psalm 119, always have your eyes looking for the word keep and observe because it speaks of obedience. Observe means more than just looking at it. It means doing. And so the psalmist speaks of obedience. And when we come to these last three verses of this stanza, In each verse, he speaks of obedience. He uses the word do in verse 166. That's obedience. Not talk, but do. And then in verse 167 and 168, he uses the word keep. So in verse 166, the psalmist hopes for God's deliverance. Remember, he began by saying, princes, persecute me without cause. Now, he says, God, I hope, I wait, I long for your salvation, that is, your deliverance. He wants to be delivered from his persecutor, but he waits and he hopes in God. But he goes on to say, and I do thy commandments. God's commandments are designed and ordained that we should keep them. God's commandments are not the basis and the source of interesting facts and intriguing ideas. Sometimes when people study the Bible, that's how they, they're just looking for some interesting facts, some intriguing ideas. Oh, 
Did you ever see this before? But the Bible has nothing at all to do with life, with living. The, the, the psalmist says, I do your commandments. I, I, I don't just read them. I don't just hear them. I don't just study them. I don't just meditate on them. I don't just memorize them. I do. I obey your commandments. I understand, God, that your word is given to me to guide me and direct me and for me to follow it. The goal of Christian life is not to hear good sermons or bad sermons or mediocre sermons. The goal of the Christian life is to be doers of the word. James says we're deceiving ourselves. We're making a miscalculation if we think there is value in hearing the word and not doing it. The psalmist says, I do. And and again, I remind you, he says that not to us, but to God. God, I do your commandments. And then in verse 167, he goes a little bit deeper. He says he loves God's testimonies exceedingly. He's over the top in his devotion and commitment to the word of God. And he can say, God, I love your word exceedingly, beyond measure, abundantly. And that's the basis for why he says at the beginning of the verse, verse 167, my soul keeps thy testimonies. Obedience. God, I love your word exceedingly. I'm devoted to it. I'm committed to it. And he says, my soul. It's like he's saying, look, he's saying, he could have just simply said I. But it's almost like he wants to go deeper. He wants us to know that it's not just external obedience, but it's internal. It, It comes from the inside and manifests itself outside. I keep, my soul keeps, deep down within me, I'm keeping your commandments. You do know that people can keep God's word externally and their heart is far away from God. I told you about that little boy who mothers kept telling him it's time to eat dinner, come to the table. And he kept ignoring his mother. Now, if that had been us, we would have killed that little rascal. (laughs) But he kept ignoring. You know how parents are today. They reason and discuss. But the person, the little boy kept ignoring. Then his mother got a little bit perturbed and said, Johnny, come sit your behind down at the table. And Johnny came. He knew mama wasn't playing around anymore. And so he sat down. But he's a smart aleck, like some of our kids. They're smart Alex. They're smart, but they're smart Alex. And he said uh, to his mom, I'm sitting down in this chair, but I'm standing in my heart. Now, you know... <laughs> the blows might have been coming out at that time. But that's the way some of us are in our obedience. Yes, God, I'm not sleeping around, but in my heart, I'm committing adultery. 
I'm watching things that dishonor you. Externally, I haven't slept with anybody, Lord. But internally, you have. And the psalmist is saying, God, God, my soul, my inner being, deep within me, I've kept your testimony. And my motivation is because I love them. I'm devoted to them. I'm committed to them. And then finally, in verse 168, the psalmist concludes by declaring that he keeps the precepts of God and the testimonies of God. Normally, this man only likes to refer to God's word with one term in a verse. But here, uses two terms, precepts, things that God has prescribed, testimony, testimonies of who God is and what he has said and what he has done. And, and the psalmist says, I keep thy precepts and I keep thy testimonies. God, there's no aspect of your word that I don't seek to obey. I know I'm not perfect. I know I, I still sin, but I, I'm committed. I'm devoted to keeping your testimonies, your precepts. Why? Why? He says at the end of the verse, for all my ways are before thee. That ought to be a statement that really grabs us. To understand that the all-seeing God sees all of our ways, all of our actions. When the psalmist thought about that, that God sees, that God observes and looks at all of his ways, that caused him to keep God's precepts and keep God's testimonies. You know how it is when we were kids, parents weren't around. We do all kind of things, right? And then all of a sudden we know, oh, they'll be home pretty soon. And we try to get our life in order. I remember one time my sister and I, my only sister, <laughs> we were coming home from Disneyland with my mom. And I was young. You know, my sister might have been a little bit wiser than me, but uh, came home. And uh, my brother had been home with some of his friends. And I just remember uh, going into the house and seeing my mom. She just went ballistic. I ain't going to tell you why she went ballistic. That ain't none of your business. <laughs> uh, focus on the sermon. Don't focus on... But she went ballistic because uh, he thought he could get away doing some things because she wasn't around. And that's what we do sometimes as Christians. We, we push God out of our thoughts. As the psalmist says, we forget him. We act as if he's not there. And we do things that we know dishonor God and displease God. And one of the great motivations... Stephen mentioned it in the, in the, the prayer, pastoral prayer about killing sin. You know, one of the great motivations for killing sin 
is understanding that all of your ways are before God. He saw you last night. He's not impressed just because you showed up today, but he sees all of our ways. And and, and that's not just to motivate us to live for God, but that's also to encourage us. That's why the psalmist can keep coming to God and telling God about his ways because he knows that God sees, that God understands. When you live your life before God, it should be a deterrent to sin, but also it should be an encouragement to keep on living for God. God sees you. God knows what you're going through, each and every one of you. And he wants you to live your life before him. He's there to help. He's there to encourage. He's there to correct. But he wants you to live your life before him. We should not dread that all of our ways are before God. It shouldn't bother us that what I think and what I say and what I do is seen by the omniscient and omnipresent God. It shouldn't bother us. Instead, it should encourage us. It should motivate us to live before God. There is a Latin phrase called Quorum Deo, C-O-R-A-M space D-E-O, Quorum Deo, a Latin phrase, and it means before the face of God. And in the history of the Christian church, the reformers used that phrase to encourage the people of God to live in the face of God, to live before God, to live in the presence of God. And my friends, that's all this text is saying to us, that we are to live before God. And particularly, it's interesting how the psalmist stresses the word of God over and over again. And so as he lived life before God, he reverenced God's word. He rejoiced at God's word. He was thankful for God's word. He loved God's word. He he got great peace from God's word. And he obeyed the word of God. So as you walk with God, as you walk with God, walk with God, making sure that the word of God is a central part of your life. Live your life before God, holding and clinging on to his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the life of the psalmist. And we realize that he lived before the cross, before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, We understand that if he lived on our side of the cross, he would speak much about Jesus Christ and his love for Jesus Christ. But thank you how he loved you. 
And thank you so much how you loved your word and was committed to your word, obeying it, reverencing it, rejoicing at it, praising you for it, and getting great peace from it. Oh, God, help us to capture his heart toward you. And may you impress upon us, each of us, to live our life before your face, knowing that you are acquainted with all of our ways. There's nothing we can hide from you, and there's nowhere we can go to flee your presence. So as we leave this place of worship, as we go to our homes, as we go to our jobs, as we go to our schools, may we live our life before you. When we're driving on the freeway, may we drive on the freeway, living our life before you, recognizing that you know us and see what is taking place. When we're talking on the phone, when we're all by ourselves, at home, isolated, may we remember we're never, ever isolated from you, that you are present. So help us, O God, by your grace and by your enablement to live life before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.